Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. I'm Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dogs or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to the very lovely and very talented Abigail Gray. Abigail Gray is an SEND consultant and author of two books, Effective Differentiation and The Effective Teaching Assistant. She has 30 years experience in education, school leadership, training and consultancy, and she's passionate about promoting achievement for pupils with additional needs. Abigail, hi. Uh, We first met on Zoom, I believe, last year after we followed one another on Twitter for a while. And I think you invited me to chat on Zoom. And I must admit, I was a little starstruck speaking to you then as I am now. (laughs) So I'm really excited you've come on my podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm well. I'm just recovering from the lurgy that I think everyone has had over the last couple of weeks. So I'm a little bit croaky, but delighted to be here. Yeah. Oh, thank you ever so much. And I believe you've just been for a run as well. You can boast about that to our listeners, Abigail. Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad this is just a podcast with audio (laughs) so you can't see my bright purple face. So uh, there's a blessing there. (laughs) Excellent. Now, we are recording this before Christmas, but our listeners will be hearing this after Christmas. So we're not going to chat about Christmas. But are you having a good start to the week? Is it going well? Yeah, it's the lovely thing is uh, my daughter uh, lives overseas. She's at university overseas and she made it home yesterday. So uh, I have her with me for a while, which is an absolute delight. I know you've got young children, but my daughter's nearly 23. Um, and you have to make the most of every moment you get. So it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you was about your experience, because when I've been well from chatting to you and from reading up about you, obviously, lots of our listeners will be teaching assistants, they might be teachers, they might be senkos. And from what I've read, you've pretty much done every job there is to do in that sort of area. You've been a teaching assistant, a specialist teacher. I have. Tell me, what have you done? How did it start? I I always struggle with writing a biography. In fact, I find it quite hysterical because we could write all sorts of details about our lives and and actually (laughs) construct completely different people and it'd still be true. Um, Yeah, I started uh, in my early 20s, back in uh, 1991. Um, My mum worked in a school office. I just finished university and I was uh, working in museum education. Um, And she said that her school were recruiting people to do reading support on a voluntary basis and that I should do this. Um, And I was working at a museum. I had one day off a week. um, It was a Monday and I volunteered And I went and I started uh, on this voluntary program doing one-to-one reading support. Um, And I absolutely fell in love with working with children. Um, And so about six months later, the school offered me a job as a a teaching assistant. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a year or two. 
Um, and then I got a place at King's to do a PGCE in English. And I went and did my PGCE. And then the school uh, kept a job for me. And they employed me as a teacher. But I always worked in learning support, as it was called then, yeah. and as an English teacher. And I never looked back. Um, in fact, Georgina, I, I, I'll give you a little preview. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be tweeting uh, about a free session that I'm doing in January based on the teaching assistant book. And the tweet will contain a picture of me 30 years ago when I was a fresh faced teaching assistant. And as I was looking through my old pictures, I um, I realized I still know the names of every child oh, in that first wonderful. group that I worked with. Um, and actually, it was that experience of recognizing that this was a secondary school, that some children go through the whole of primary school and get to secondary school with literacy, with literally no literacy skills mm -hmm. at all. Um, some of them were getting through to 16 without any literacy skills and school refusal, all kinds of issues that made them vulnerable to massive underachievement. And I just, I was dumbfounded. I thought, how can this be? And in my naive sort of 22 year old brain, I thought I've got to do something about this. And so I'm, I'm a vocational teacher and I, I stayed there as a teacher and then as Senko for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then in my early 30s, when I was a young mum, I, uh, I got a deputy headship at, a, at an independent special school in West London for children with specific learning difficulties. And it wasn't till I got there that I did my uh, postgraduate certificate in specific learning difficulties. Yeah. Um, and I was deputy there for six or seven years and then head for the same amount of time. And wow. in that time, it was really about honing a craft. It was a hugely innovative school. And we were absolutely committed to creating a curriculum and a pastoral environment uh, that nurtured and fostered strengths and achievement. And, and this, you know, we were actually very, very successful. Um, and the wonderful thing about it, the thing I loved most about it was that it was an independent school, but uh, it had a massive socioeconomic spread. We took children from 21 London boroughs. Wow. And uh, about half of them, by the time I left, uh, were funded by their statement as was, EHCP mm -hmm. as is now, and half of them were independently funded. So you can imagine the yeah. the scope and the uh, amazingly kind of um, varied backgrounds everybody came from. And they were this incredibly strong community of children who understood that difference is a given. Yeah. that diversity is an essential component and not something to be catered for, but just something to be recognised, valued and supported. Um, so this is a really long answer to a really no, short question. No, it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And just thinking about those roles, then, if you could go back in time and do one of them again, which one would you do? Would you want to go back and be able oh to Oh, God, if I could do all of it again. <laughs> I'd do all of it again. <laughs> just do the exact same thing again. I love it. I tell you what, and I, I reckon your listeners will relate to this. I think you have, no matter what role you're in, you'll have vintage years in different roles. Mm -hmm. When You know when that amazing uh, kind of uh, the stars align and you'll have a couple of years where all your colleagues are just 
absolutely amazing yeah. or when something's really working. And I've had years like that in every job I've done. I've had years, in my TA years were absolutely brilliant. And I learned by being in other people's classrooms, yeah. I learned so much about teaching. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really real privilege, actually, to have the opportunity to have been in so many people's classrooms and see different ways that people teach, because people teach in so many different ways, don't they? And their approach is different and it works for them and it works in different ways. I bet that was a real valuable I'm, experience. I'm nodding. <laughs> yeah, I'm nodding. <laughs> because the other thing is, as a TA, I worked across every subject in the school and, and the wonderful insight that I still kind of talk to TAs about today is that we see um, children's experience across a day. There's no segmentation of what they're like here and what they're like mm. there, but there's that understanding of the rhythm of the day, of the stress points in the day, of the rooms that the kids are afraid to go into or hesitant, of the places they feel comfortable and excited. And you see school as a whole experience from the child's perspective, if you let yeah. yourself. And that is hugely informing for educational leadership. It's essential to retain the child's eye view. They call it pupil voice now. Mm. And, and great, if you can harness pupil voice and make it tell you that, but there's nothing like keeping that perspective um, yeah. for, for building curricula, the pr curriculums that work. Absolutely. I bet you can see all sorts of like the trigger points, the things that are changing a child's behaviour. You, you you see the teachers that they're responding well to and the styles of learning that it's helping them. I bet, you, I bet you've learned so much from that. Do you think it helped inform your role as a SENCO then being a teaching assistant? Absolutely. I think, I think that um, I, I, I often talk about the SENCO role uh, as a hub as a hub around which provision turns. And I think that to be a good Senko is to be able to understand and listen to the perspectives of a wide variety of, of others, because your place is alongside the child as a supporter, as an advocate, as an advisor, as a teacher, but your integrity, the, the, the core of your role is alongside that child. But in to make provision work, you really do have to be open and listen to what it is that people around you are telling you. And to a certain extent, yeah. they're not telling you. And I think the wonderful thing about being a TA that informs that is that to a certain extent, TAs have to be hugely skillful diplomats. They have to listen and they have to judge situations, when to intervene, when to hold back, when to say something, when, when to wait. Um, and so, and because they're not necessarily in that uh, powerful role as the teacher, but they're working to the teacher and they're working with the child in the middle of that dynamic, that is a very fertile place for learning about bringing people together productively. And um, the other thing is it's a great place to get things wrong. And if you don't get things wrong, <laughs> you're never going to get anything right. You know, ultimately it's, it's a place where you have to experiment to a certain extent. And I talk about teaching probably because I'm a bit of a yogi as mm -hmm. a practice um, because the, 
you can't become a perfect teacher. You can't become a perfect TA or a perfect leader um, because what we're doing all the time is trying to respond and plan and innovate in response to the changing environment of our school, of our time, of our qualification system, of uh, the employment um, circumstances. You know, you never get there. There's always a process, the next iteration, how you adjust. So, yeah, in short, definitely. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> then you, you've written two books. I was going to talk about your one about effective differentiation, but as we're talking about teaching assistants, I think it would make more sense mm. to talk about your book, The Effective Teaching Assistant, first. Um, so who is it for? Is it for teaching assistants? Is it for Senkos? Who is it for? Well, it's for both. I mean, when, and it's by, obviously, I should mention yes. Melanie, the lovely Melanie Wright, who wrote this with me, bless her, over Zoom, finishing it really? during lockdown. Yeah, we published last December. So December 2020. So we yeah. finished the book in the first lockdown via Zoom. Um, and Mel's a full-time Senko who has got masses of experience still working full-time and she's worked mm-hmm. in the independent and in the state sector and has this incredible knowledge and understanding uh, practically on the ground. Um, and the book was written for Senkos and it was written directly for TAs in the same way that effective differentiation is written for school leaders, but it's also written uh, for an NQT. Um, yeah. Hopefully we write in a way that is approachable um, mm-hmm. and not too uh, academic. Uh, it's certainly not a book. We What we wanted to, to aim for was a book that's not for writing an essay about something. It's about yes. doing it. It's about making a difference in the classroom to the child. That That's the kind of aim. And so that's what we went for with the TA. But the two books are linked because the effective TA uses the same basic nuts and bolts um, that we set that I set out in effective differentiation, but it applies yeah. it to this collaborative relationship that exists between teaching assistants, children, teachers, parents, everybody else. Yeah, and so it's somebody who's got this book or is ordering it now, how should they use this book to get the most out of it? Is it one that you dip in and out of? Do you read it from the start to the finish? What What would you say, or, or is it unique to each person? How do you think they should use the book? <laughs> to be honest, there is a progression in the book. Mm -hmm. There are kind of, there are sort of three main parts that you can sort of skip through. But uh, to use the tools that we've designed, the checklists that we've designed, one of them, the sort of central checklist, um, it sets out a series of considerations that teachers and TAs can talk about making when they're planning support for children in the classroom. Um, And these considerations, there's about 14 of them, I think, um, they are derived from my uh, sort of essential philosophy, which is that children who struggle with learning, uh, even if they have a wide variety of different diagnoses or if they have no diagnoses, very often have difficulty with speech sound processing, working memory, and processing time. Now, they may have difficulty with one or two or all three of them, and they may have difficulty with them in different measure. And those three difficulties may interact 
uh, and produce different effects. But essentially, having spent years and years of my life going through diagnostic paperwork for children with a whole variety of learning difficulties, um, those three things come up over and over and over and over again as areas where children um, struggle. And so if you can get teachers and TAs to understand the impact of those three things on the the essential components of classroom learning, listening to and following instructions, being able to use a source and, and draw information from it, whether it's a piece of paper or a picture or a board, um, if you can help them to understand that, what makes something difficult isn't because it's got a certain, you know, level five written on it and, it, and it's about <laughs> something which has got a long word. You know, the nitrogen cycle isn't inherently difficult. It's, it's more difficult for some children because the task you've, you've designed places a huge load on working memory or... Yeah has had a great many verbal instructions without any visual cues or prompts or things to refer to or scaffolding, um, which then means that you've got children who are struggling with the language and with the working memory. And if you then give people a short amount of time and pressure what they need to have done, you are creating this kind of perfect storm. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing, you know, something that one would consider basic or something one would consider sophisticated. But the way that we teach um, can have a massive impact on the way that children learn. And we have to learn to teach the way they learn and recognize these three things. And so essentially that's set out in a couple of chapters that are quite short. And then there's a mnemonic. So the the TA book has a mnemonic, mnemonic, um, I love a mnemonic because I have a terrible memory and so I have to have (laughs) books to hang stuff on. Um, And uh, the hooks that I hang essentials for TAs on are the Dr. Keep It mnemonic. Um, So Dr. Keep It is this little little character that helps TAs, sits on their shoulder. Um, And she, I've decided, Dr. Keep It (laughs) is a she. I like Um, it. She reminds us that if we consider dialogue D, the way that we use talk in a classroom situation. R is for resources, what we have to hand at our fingertips. And I break this down in the book, different types of resources. K is about key points. You know, what is it that we are expecting children to take away from this uh, lesson? What is the cumulative element of it? E is encouragement. And the second E in keep it is engagement. And I talk about what encouragement and engagement look like. Um, P is about proximity. It's about where the TA physically is in the classroom in relation to the child, but also in the school. Where do they live? Where's their space for preparing or for, Mm -hmm. you know, having a moment or for writing up their notes? Like, where are they? I is for identifying barriers because a TA isn't there just to make an offer and to enact and to do interventions. A TA is there to notice stuff. 
not to yes. draw conclusions, but to make observations about barriers that pop up. Because you know, and I know, kids change. They're different at different times of days in different settings. And as they yes. get older, things that weren't an issue for them are an issue for them. And yep. TAs can be in a wonderful position to notice and identify those barriers. And T is is the basic one. T is for task chunking. So yep. as a TA, you have a kind of whole set of things that you can do to chunk tasks. But one of the points that I think we make really clearly in the book is having worked for many years with kids with specific learning difficulties like dyslexia. If you break things down too much, you lose the big picture. If you lose the big picture, you lose uh, the momentum, the motivation, but also um, a sense of, of where this is all going and how it fits together. If we break our learning up too much and we don't stick it back together again, <laughs> you kind of lose the thread. Um, yeah. And so that's really important. So yeah, Dr. Keep It, I love uh, that. Eight things to keep in mind. So is your idea that TAs have this doctor keep it sort of in their brain, thinking about it when they're in the classroom and referring back to and thinking, right, am I, do, am I doing the chunking? What is my proximity? All of those sorts of things. Is that is that the idea? Absolutely. The idea is to have a set of options when what you are doing isn't working. Yeah. Um, and the idea is to recognise that um, you look at each child or group of children are new and even you can go off and do a great training and learn about a specific intervention but that isn't going to equip you for the next child and the next class because yeah. if you're working in you know a classroom where the agenda is being set by the classroom teacher the curriculum is is uh, something that possibly you haven't trained in and you're not familiar with mm -hmm. the doctor keep it agenda helps you think okay so even if i'm not clear and i'm not experienced in this period of history that we're doing in this lesson and i need to support these children what are my options what are the things that i can do to support them that's going to help them engage with the content and be able to work productively and get you know with with that lesson with that teacher brilliant i think when i was doing some reading about you as well i came across um another person that again i discovered it was a mnemonic and not a real person and that was dr gopta is dr. that another Gopta's one of your one for... i do love a mnemonic i was a science teacher at the start of my career and so mnemonics were quite a big part of that gcse science it's quite useful having these mnemonics so who is dr gopta then dr gopta dr gopta was the first um, well, there's three, actually. I hate to tell you, but there's three. I only knew two. Well, in the first book, it's Dr. Gopta and Mr. Chuffy. So Dr. Gopta are the seven paths into a differentiated approach. So yeah. it's very similar to, we adapted it for the second book. So Dr. Gopta's dialogue resources, grouping, outcome, pace, task, and assessment. Yeah. So we, in the book, break down the considerations for those things um, so that teachers can think about their options uh, when they are trying to find new routes into learning for children who are struggling to to manage uh, with the routes that are available at the moment. Um, the Mr. Chuffy bit's important because the Mr. Chuffy bit, Mr. Chuffy is the embodiment of a positive learning experience. Okay. The things that you would want to see children engaging in and doing if they are working and being included uh, and taking part. So Mr. Chuffy are the, 
I read so much about effective teaching, all the global reports about what makes for the most effective teaching and learning and sort of seven things come up mm-hmm. and they're making links, taking risks, <clears throat> being cognitively engaged, um, having opportunities to check their understanding. That's the you. Yeah. Receiving and participating in feedback. That's the F and being independent. having the opportunity to work on their own that's I so we very often talk about oh we're an inclusive school or we want an inclusive school and this is uh and we have a policy to achieve that but if you sit down and ask people what does that look like yeah uh it's very easy to stop at, well, we've got children with special needs in this class. Uh Uh-huh, of course you have. There are children with additional (laughs) needs everywhere. But what does it look like for them? What are they doing? Um, And for me, unless you can tell me uh, that the children who are vulnerable to that underachievement are doing those things in your lesson, then it strikes me that they don't have the same opportunity to achieve and succeed if they're not making links, if they're not taking risks, if they don't, and they're not able to check their understanding, if they're not really understanding the feedback, marking or assessment stuff that's going on, and if they don't get a chance to do stuff on their own and be autonomous. It's a huge part of growing up and, and becoming. That was one thing actually that I was going to ask you about was um, about one-to-one support. So, it's how do sometimes TAs are asked to work specifically with one child in a classroom? And I know as a Senko, I got asked this question quite a lot. Is how do you ensure that that child is still developing sort of independent learning skills whilst still getting the support from that teaching assistant? What do you think is the way? To, it's a tricky one, I know, and difficult for each individual child. But how do you sort of get that balancing act between providing enough support but also giving them the independence they need? Well, I think it's about. Um... It's about having a clear understanding of what that support is for, what it might look like and what it's designed to achieve, which is what the kind of in-class support agenda is about. It's that conversation, which is between the teacher and the LSA and the TA or LSA, but also as the child becomes more able to uh, discuss what it is that they, they would prefer and what they need them, them as well. I mean, they're also involved in that. And I think that, of course, some children are going to require a higher level of intensity when it comes to input from more than one adult. However, it's entirely possible for, if you look at the proximity issue, if you yeah. discuss where a TA can be and if you can be clear about what it is that they're actually offering that child um, by way of prompts or by way of additional resources or by way of a chunked expectation of possibly time that they can spend by themselves, um, then they can check in with children rather than hover over them. I mean, do you enjoy people standing watching you type behind you when you're writing something? Because I certainly don't. Absolutely not. I was actually, um, we've got a camper van and I was making (laughs) making a fried egg for my husband in this camper van and he was watching me the whole time and a similar sort of thing. He was hovering watching me and he had no intention of making me feel the way he was making me feel. But 
I'm perfectly capable of making an egg. But the pressure I had whilst doing that because I knew someone was watching me was quite a lot. <laughs> and I imagine that's the same for children, isn't it? If they've got somebody hovering over them, watching them whilst they're working, it increases that pressure, doesn't it? Increases, yeah, increases absolutely. And actually, in the TA courses, I. I... I've been a consultant for seven years and all through that time I've done uh, courses for teaching assistants and that's where the book came from. It came from those experiences and the feedback from those experiences. And one of the activities I used to do was I would put people in pairs and I would invite them to copy a relatively complex um, character, a a kanji, a Chinese character, Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, and try and learn it and I would uh, one time they would do it with a with someone kind of being right on their shoulder and watching them and then they'd have an opportunity to do it on their own and then they talk they used to feedback on what had felt more comfortable and better and nine times out of ten people like clear instructions Uh, a time frame and an expectation that they think they can meet and then they like to be left alone yeah. And then they like someone to check in with them to see how they've got on, maybe, you know, tweak it, ask a question, get some reassurance, then be left alone and do it again. I bet um, that training was so valuable to be actually put in the shoes of the child and actually imagine what it's like for them. Because you do think, oh, right, well, that child needs some support. Right. Let's put the teaching assistant next to them. They can help them. But you're right. Completely. It's putting pressure on that child. And is that really what they need and what they want? I think that's brilliant. And I think for also for the teaching assistant, and I know this from experience, you know, years ago, if you don't feel that you can detach yourself from the child, that there's not somewhere else in the classroom you can go and be mm-hmm. and that everyone understands that you're doing that actively. You're making a choice and it's for a good reason. And that, um, I think sometimes TAs are kind of by default put in a position um, because no one else has thought about how to choreograph their yeah. role differently. Yeah. Absolutely. That's such a good point. And everyone's so busy that it does sometimes get, you know, it doesn't get the priority it needs. Some people do need to be directing, directing them. And that sort of leads to another question I had, which was how to effectively direct your teaching assistant in the classroom to have the biggest impact on the children. Is that very specific to the needs of the child? How would you give that advice to Zenkos? I mean, I think that there is always a degree of nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we fail to have good systems to acknowledge individual pupil history and background, then we're doing children a disservice because some children have been through, you know, fairly complex, lengthy diagnostic processes. Some children have had support for a very long time and we have to find ways to digest that so Mm -hmm. we don't make the mistakes of the past, but that we build on the the successes. So I think that as a Senko, making sure that we can hang on to things that work uh, and approaches and practices that are working is really important and making sure they're shared and that TAs have an opportunity to absorb that information and to talk about it and ask about it. That's important. I think that having a toolbox like Dr. Keep It um, is really helpful um, so that they can have some induction into uh, common barriers to learning 
Um, I, I think, you know, the dialogue one, I always start with if I do an intro training, because very often in a mainstream setting, the medium of support is additional verbal prompts. And there's a lot of extra talk. Sometimes that can work, but sometimes it is more confusing. Um, and it's this dual track going into a child's head that sometimes can disengage them from one set of information, engage them into another set of information, and it kind of fades in and out like listening to two radio programs at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there are relatively straightforward considerations that you can make that can kind of really iron that out. Um, so I would advocate having a look at that structure and at least the in-class support agenda that just means you know how you're going to actually uh, approach this because then you can make changes. If you start from a point of view, look, this is how I'm going to start. This is what I'm going to try. Then you can go back and change it and make modifications. But if you start from a point of assumptions based on what that TA has done before in a different classroom with a different set of children in a different school, then um, you're likely to have situations which often I think do arise uh, where there's a sense of kind of embarrassment. There's a sense of, I don't really know who to talk to about this. I don't know whether it's what they want me to do or I'm doing all this, but they don't seem to notice. You know, you get yeah. into situations where people are working in good faith, but they don't really understand what each other are expecting. Absolutely. And so you end up sometimes in conflict and it's mm -hmm. all because you didn't sit down and have a 15 minute conversation at the beginning to kind of set your stall out. Yeah. I think that is key. So would you advise that for, you know, new teachers with a new class of a new teaching assistant that's coming always. in, perhaps always sit down always. and have that chat at the start? And it doesn't have to be every day. You know, I know uh, TAs will always say in training, there's never enough time to talk to teachers no. about children. And teachers will say the same about TAs. But if you can create leaders, school leaders out there, if you can create <laughs> opportunities at the beginning of a learning period, whether it's a half term or a whatever it is, for those two people to come together and have a look at that agenda yeah. and just, it creates also that respect that you're in my room to achieve this and I'm doing this and I'd really appreciate it if we could. It's yeah. It's like a partnership, isn't it? Because, yeah. yeah, you're linked together. You both have the same goals and you, you're helping each other. And I suppose then when you make mistakes, which everybody does, you can then learn from them and nobody has that shame. It's like, this hasn't worked. How can we make it better? And you've got that open dialogue to discuss it, haven't you? Absolutely. Which massively helps. Absolutely. I also wanted to talk about your book, Effective Differentiation, a little bit more, if that's okay. No so who, who's that book for? Is that the same audience as the Effective TA? It's, it was written for teachers, for for teachers yeah. at any point in their career, really. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I thought there were lots of books out there for Senkos. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I mean, one of the things I do with my life is um, I tutor on the Naysenko Award. Yes. Um, and I think that there are lots of, um, there's a lot written for Senkos uh, to absorb um, in terms of sort of structuring their provisions and in terms of sort of managing uh, their teams and uh, managing regulations and all the sort of things that they need to do. But what I wanted was a book that a teacher 
who has no real particular interest even necessarily in SEND, but what does a teacher that's working in a mainstream school, what do they really need to know? We can have a code of practice that says all teachers are teachers of SEND and just Mm -hmm. leave it there. Okay, yes, that's true. But how? What do we mean by that? Um, And so if you look in the... um, Uh, index of the book, it's written as a a series of answers to a series of questions. So each chapter is broken down into, into, I don't know, between sort of five and I think probably mid-teens questions. And so actually, you can just look at the question that you want to answer and go to that paragraph and read that bit Brilliant. Um, so I wanted to call it everything you need to know about SEND, but we're afraid to ask. But I didn't think we're actually really going to go for that. <laughs> oh, I love that. I would have thought that. That sounds brilliant. A <laughs> um, million dollar question for you then, Abigail. <gasps> what is differentiation? Because we all think we know what it is, but what? how would you actually define the word differentiation? I mean, I have my own definition. Isn't that great? Make your own up. But, <laughs> but, but my definition is that to differentiate is to acknowledge diversity and to act to ensure diversity does not become disadvantage. That is a brilliant answer off the cuff there. I'm very impressed. Uh, It's it's true as well. It's brilliant. It's a two-part process for me. Recognising diversity is one thing. And it's not just recognising the existence of it, but Mm recognising... how diversity is that diversity neurodiversity etc is impacting on that person but if we don't then make adjustments and do something in that environment in ourselves uh then we're not we're not enabling that person to get the best out of their experience and that's what we're aiming to do that's what we're signed up to Absolutely. I think it's important looking at what the goal of it is, the reason for it, isn't it? Rather than just be something we've got to do, it's thinking about why we're doing it. Absolutely. Why? So why do you think it, because it is tricky, why do you think it's so difficult and so tricky to actually differentiate classroom, differentiate the work, differentiate for kids? I, I think I think there's a lot of misinformation about differentiation in the sense that I think people think differentiation is having five different worksheets with mm-hmm. five different kinds of content in five different ways and um for me that's not what it's about for me it's the thing is that it's an integrated set of systems so to have a really great approach to differentiation in a school you do need someone coordinating send provision and inclusive provision so that the information we've got about children that's already been established or that's being established that we know and is being shared. And so teachers know that a child's got a visual impairment or this child has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and that means that they are likely to X, Y, Z. You know, that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, is to have a coordinated provision that's sharing useful information. Um, And then you need also to give teachers an opportunity to to respond to that and to work with uh, colleagues, the SENCO, but also their departmental colleagues, to talk about 
their strategies and look at what's working and what isn't. And, you know, I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't think they need to be offered. They didn't need to be offered a kind of an approachable uh, not too frighteningly technical set of considerations to think about. So it sounds like you're saying not as a, definitely not as an add-on. It's got to be we're no. even within everything. It's got to be in the you know the department meetings. It's got to be throughout as just a natural way of of developing <laughs> curriculum, developing everything. And it's collaborative. I yeah. think that you know I'm sure there are fantastic teachers that can develop their practice alone. And I think you can always do things to to build and improve your own skills pedagogically. But for a school to become more inclusive, there is it is a cooperative, coordinated, collaborative yeah. thing. And often, and in the books, all in both the books and in the new books that I'm working on at the moment, finding buddies, finding teams, getting people to work together across the little separate spaces we build within school, whether we call them subject areas or year groups or whatever you want, getting people to work uh, together is a really fertile space, I think, for yeah. building skills and knowledge. So if there's a Senko listening to this, hopefully there'll be more than one. Um, if they're listening to this now and they're thinking, right, that sounds brilliant. I want to make my, you know, I want to make my whole school um, embrace this differentiation more and be more inclusive. What steps should they be taking tomorrow when they go back into school? What can they, what can they like actively do? What can they do? I think, I think, well, I think maybe what they first need to do is is look at what they have been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, we all are in a position. If we're talking in, you know, in England, and we're looking at uh, the need to produce a send information report. In your send information report, there's an obligation that you set out your approach to teaching for children with special educational needs and disabilities. And I'd have a little look at what it is you've been saying in there, yeah. and then I would start a conversation around whether that is happening Mm -hmm. and what effect that's happening. Um, And I would probably want some feedback from pupils and families and teachers. I might start a working group to talk about that. I might have a little look at uh, the performance and the attainment of the children on the SEND register. Um, I might try and gather up some understanding of what bits of my provision are fantastically brilliant and I want to build on and what bits are maybe not really in place at all, even though I thought they were. Um, And what bits do we need to lose? And, And then you work not try taking what Abigail says and smacking it like like, we'll get rid of all of that and then we'll just install all of this nothing good comes of that you have to look at with fresh eyes what it is that you've got and start with what it is we want to see what are we aiming for yeah you know that whole what success look like that's a good question yeah, and then looking at what you're already doing and how you can get there and what you yeah. need to put in place to get Softly, there. softly. And that's how you do consultancy. You ask questions and you don't predict the answers. You listen to them and then think, hmm, what else do I need to know? 
Yeah, brilliant. So consultancy, that's a, another area of things. You, you seem to you do a lot of things, Abigail. I'm very impressed. Um, so you, you're a SEND consultant as well. So you've got a company called Senworks. Have I have you, indeed, you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that? Oh, consultancy. Consultancy is, um, for me, it's school improvement with special educational needs and disability provision as a driver, not an add-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it my conviction I won't call it a belief because that makes it sound too <laughs> evangelical but my conviction is that if you can get your curriculum and your teaching and learning and assessment everything right for your most vulnerable your least vulnerable are bound to benefit to yes you know and therefore send isn't and i said also i've said this before but i will say it again send is not a limb of a school you cannot isolate it and set it like an arm in a cast it's a it's it runs through the body of the school like a nervous system runs through your body it has to go everywhere it has hubs where it comes together and processes information but it sends out and it and it takes feedback. And so consultancy is about kind of highlighting the reality of SEND provision in that school and inviting that school to think, is that what you want this to do? And if it isn't, what is it that you want it to do? And how do we identify the the, the improvements, the enhancements, the changes, the modifications that we need to make to get it where we want it to be. Is that a very long-winded way That's of talking answer. about it? I love the analogy of the nervous system and how it runs through us. It's fantastic. No, it's a really good point. And so in terms of your consultancy yourself, so you, I don't know, do you go into schools at the moment or is that something that you've, you're doing The only virtually? consultancy I've done during the pandemic has been virtual. Yeah. Um, and but I have done. I've done. I've been doing online consultancy. Um, it's a difficult time for itinerant people. I think I've <laughs> I've been sort of working around the country for many years, and after the pandemic hit, even when schools reopened, moving and working in one school and then another school in a different part of the country didn't sound to me like the most sensible or responsible no. thing to be doing. Um, and so I've, I've kind of created some new services. One of the things I've been doing recently, which I'm really loving and I'd like to do more of is I've been doing sessions online with Senkos, helping mm. them create uh, staff training sessions that are based on the book. So I'll provide them with a kind of a skeleton presentation that they can populate with the specifics of their own school. Um, And we'll have an online, we'll have a conversation about their priorities, their concerns. So I'm kind of uh, doing this sort of mentoring around training yeah, that um, sounds fantastic. Which has been really fun, actually. I've met, I just, I just think teachers and Senkos in particular are absolute salt of the earth, amazing people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's given me a real opportunity to sort of meet people and listen to what specifics uh, are, are acting on them in their situation and, and applying my kind of approach to that 
to kind of mean that they don't have to reinvent the wheel the whole time. Yes, because time, as we know, as a Senko, is is very, very limited. And yeah. you've got a lot of pulls on you from different areas. So I Absolutely. imagine helping them. And I was thinking as well um, about Senkos. And they're the ones offering, as always, a lot of advice. They're helping parents. They're helping teachers. They're helping teaching assistants. They're helping everybody. Who's, now you've answered this, you're helping them. But like, who is helping the Senkos? They must be a very difficult, more isolating than previously as well with the pandemic. Do you think there's enough support out there for Senkos at the moment? I, I think it was, it's yes and no. On, on the one hand, social media, if I had had social media when I'd been a senior leader in school, I think my life would have been very different because there are networks of people having useful conversations with each other about things, you know, in, you know, at the tip of your thumbs that yeah. just didn't exist. Um, 10, 15 years ago. So I think there are online communities of support, which are phenomenal. And I think a lot of Senkos are tapping into those. I think that there are communities that build up in a Senko groups when people join together and they study together. Um, And I would really... I think that's a really important part of Nasenko. I think there needs to be a group element really so that you can share experience with colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think there is enough understanding um, from even from colleagues, let alone from the wider community of stakeholders in schools. But even from colleagues, I don't think really that there is enough understanding of the depth and complexity of this role. Yeah. Um, I've been doing this 30 years, Georgina, and I learn something new every single day. And it is a hugely demanding, technical, um, potentially litigious Mm -hmm. space within education, but one requiring of both precision and real fantastic emotional intelligence, what people call soft skills, you know, uh, communication, all of that stuff. And um, very often, Senkos are perceived as kind of, you know, middle managers, not even in senior leadership teams. And yet they're expected to have knowledge, skills and qualities that I think uh, characterise most heads, most good heads. Yeah. Um, And so for me, there is a little bit of an imbalance, really, in what we're expecting of Senkos and what people understand their role to be um, and the level at which they're both paid but given space and time to do what they're doing um, and and respected. You know, it's a hugely difficult job, um, hugely necessary, but it requires support and acknowledgement. Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, So in terms of your future and what you're doing, I believe you're writing two more books. I don't know how you've got time to do all this. So you've got two more books. Tell you can talk, Georgina. You can talk. You're yeah. a busy woman too. Yeah, well. <laughs> so the two more books in the pipeline. Are you able to? I know yeah, it's like, I can talk to you about them. Tell me about them. I can talk to you about is this them. An exclusive, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. I am. Um, <laughs> well, I think I put a, a 
a sort of thing on LinkedIn or something. Um, yeah, I was actually invited uh, to take part in this project. Um, the books are going to be published by Speechmark at Routledge mm-hmm. this time. So I was Taylor Francis last time. It's Speechmark this time. Um And they are two books in a series that's going to be called All About Send. And my two are all about dyslexia. Fantastic. Um, One for primary and one for secondary. Um, And for me, it's like going back home because my school was a school, the, the independent school that I ran was a school principally for children with specific learning difficulty dyslexia. Um, but having said that, we live in a u- neurodiverse universe and uh, I think that there's a hugely high level of kind of complexity very often um, going on with dyslexia, but uh, it is a, a space I've inhabited as a teacher and as a leader um, working with children and families for for the whole of my career. and. Yeah. And I think that dyslexic young people um, and adults are some of the most undervalued and incredibly uh, high achieving mm-hmm. um, groups. And I, certainly the children that I worked with um were astonishing in what they were, what they what they uh, did at school. Once they found their feet and they were yeah. accepted, and they were in an adapted environment that recognised their strengths. You know, the sky was general. You know, genuinely the limit. And if I can contribute something really practical to the nurturing of the talents of dyslexics, I'd I'd be delighted to do that but it will be a nuts and bolts kind of set of how-tos in this book I won't wax too lyrical oh it sounds brilliant I'm actually really excited about this book I, I tutored quite a lot of um, dyslexic kids over the last year and I completely agree once they sort of once they've got that diagnosis and they start to understand that it's not it's not them they've not done anything wrong especially younger children thinking that they're you know then just it's all down to them they've not been trying hard enough and once they realize that actually no it's just dyslexia and you're really bright or you know you've got all these things to offer and it's just your dyslexia that's stopping you and then I think you know the world's their oyster isn't it and I think it's lovely that experience to see when they realize that they can do things and they just need to do it in a different way absolutely absolutely and I I really have enjoyed and I'll give it a, a, a shameless plug here Kate Griggs <laughs> book uh, this is dyslexia mm-hmm. um uh, obviously the book is part of the whole made by dyslexia sort of charities uh, package of online uh, resources um but it is has been you know blatantly apparent to me for decades that um in education, we tend to equate literacy with intelligence. Yeah. As if uh, immediately, if you have age-appropriate or more than age-appropriate reading skills, uh, suddenly you're streets ahead of everybody. And, and we don't recognise the astonishing gifts sometimes of uh, children and young people and adults with dyslexia because they're not expressed Yes. in that medium very often um 
which is a you know which is our loss and the thing is that is the thing about inclusion that is the thing about the whole inclusion philosophy for me the the education is not doing inclusion uh out of some benevolent uh wish to 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 kind of uh to to bring people in it's to benefit the whole of society It, it it by recognising the gifts of everybody. Absolutely. I mean, that's just good sense, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, it sounds it. Absolutely. No, you're right, completely. And your website, if somebody's thinking, especially I imagine listening to that bit where you're talking about Senkos and helping them with their training, their staff training, if a Senko's listening now thinking, I would have a girl to help me, um, how can they find your website? It's Senworks. So www.senworks.co.uk. So it's S-E-N and then W-O-R-K-S, senworks.co.uk. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being my guest, Abigail. You've been brilliant. I've, I've learned loads in the last hour. So I'm hoping that our listeners will have learned lots as well. So thank you ever so much. It's an absolute pleasure. And I love your book, um, Georgina. <laughs> and I'm sending it as a Christmas present to a friend of mine um, for their child. Oh, uh, so keep doing what you're doing oh, um, because lots of families and children are massively best benefiting from it. So it's been an honour to be your guest. I've oh, loved it. Thank you ever so much, Abigail. Take care. Thank you so much. Wasn't she an amazing guest? You can find Abigail on social media. On Twitter, she is Abigail SEN Works. On Instagram, she is SEN Works Limited. And her website is senworks.co.uk. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Sending the Experts with Georgina Durrant. Please subscribe to our podcast and help us to spread the word about it by sharing it far and wide. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us next time. Bye.